Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for another episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And as always, we're brought to you by Crook and I Brewery in the heart of Happer, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Marcus, it's a different kind of journey. It's all, well, it is the holiday season, but it's almost Christmas. And this week, we're going to take a journey back to an original release. And we're going to meet a friend of mine for a long time and a friend of the Philadelphia music scene for a long time, too, and talk about what really has been a lost Christmas album from Teddy Pendergrass. And we've been listening to it, so I want to introduce our friend Jim Salamone on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It is so good to have you here uh, to talk about not just this but some of the other stuff that you've been a part of in your crazy rock and roll life jim yeah hey ray hey marcus it's a pleasure to be here and um since a lot of the people i i have uh grew up with in my career are no longer with us i have stories <laughs> so, you have stories you can tell now that's oh, sure, i right? think so yeah nobody yeah, will come sure. after me now <laughs> Well, you have your own stories about your path, and we were kind of talking about it before we turned the mics on about how you started out wanting to be in rock and roll. You were in a fusion band you told us about, and you had some pretty lofty fans too, right? Um, David yeah. Fricke from Rolling Stone and and our friend John DiLiberto from Philly, right? You know, in the mid-'70s, I like when <clears> – <throat> I think rock reached its peak like in the late 60s or the early 70s. And uh, I was in college in the 70s. And, you know, uh, I got into jazz rock, the Chick Corea, John McLaughlin stuff. We formed the band. And I studied with Pat Martino's drummer, Sherman Ferguson, uh, who's no longer with us. And um, anyway, we were like a jazz rock band. And we played at the Tower Theater. Uh, in an art synthesizer competition. We played a lot of the colleges and venues, and uh, I used to advertise in The uh, the Drummer, which was, a, I don't know if you remember, The Drummer in the Daily sure. Planet. Well, David Frick was a part of that. That's how I met David. He did articles. I posted advertisements. That's how I met David, and we became fast friends. In fact, it was funny. I, somewhere in, uh, I guess it was when the, the Stones were doing their 
89 tour, I went to Giant Stadium or Meadowlands to see the Stones. We got tickets through some record company. And as I was walking into the aisle, David Frick was sitting behind me. And I leaned over and I said, do you remember me? And he said, yes, free flight. And I was wow. Very, I was very impressed that that he remembered. Uh, so and, and John DiLiberto was a disc jockey at WXPN. And uh, we used to go on XPN and, and play uh, live on the air and he would play our music. And so, uh, yeah, John and I go back to those days. That was before Echoes, really, probably. At that oh, yeah, time. yeah. I think yeah. he was still a, he might have just graduated right. uh, from college at that time. So, yeah, it was pre-Echoes. I noticed you played at local clubs like the Main Point. Did you ever get to open for anybody like a Warren Zevon or a Jackson Brown when they were up and coming when you were playing some of those gigs? In the 1977 era, because we were a fusion band, they would never book us with an act like that. So they, we would open up for like uh, Michael Lerbraniak and Ursula Dudziak and Larry Coriel. Uh, which was uh, an extremely memorable show because uh, we opened up for him. And of course, we had a four-piece electric band. <clears throat> and at the time, I guess he was probably best known at that time for his electric band, The 11th House. Yeah. He was the headliner. But when he walked on stage, it was just him and an acoustic guitar. And I was I was a little bummed. Uh, and if you guys remember the original main point, it wasn't a very large venue and i was standing along the back wall my drums were on stage and he was just playing and then all of a sudden he went into um uh, watermelon man on the acoustic guitar and i have no idea what came over me but i ran up on the stage and sat behind my drums and started to play drums behind him you know and, and about 20 seconds in i realized what i had done and i thought oh, christ <laughs> uh <clears throat> but when it was over the people went crazy and he grabbed me and he said, you're not going anywhere. He said, get your band up here. And so the whole band came up and we we spent the rest of the night. Uh, and this was a double header. I guess we did a Friday and a Saturday night there. So and this was a Friday night. And so we jammed with them all night and, the, and jammed. I mean, we just started doing something and took off and went, you know, we would go through Stevie Wonder. We would go through The Who. I mean, we were just. It was amazing. And when it was all over, we had this ridiculous standing ovation. It was it was euphoric. And the next day, as I would walk around, because I, I was staying with a friend of mine that lived out that way, uh, people would drive by and wave out the car and say, ah, free flight. And we played again with him that Saturday night. And that, it's 1977. And that was a, a big moment. But we never were booked with folk or rock artist it was always a jazz oriented artist but by then there was a lot more of that going on a lot more action for young bands to plug into yeah the 70s was a good time you know i can remember going to the spectrum and seeing chick Corea with focus and leslie uh west's mountain what a fusion excuse the pun of of sounds, you know? Right, I mean, right. the categories, the, the lines were blurred a little bit there, which was a lot of fun back in the 70s. 
We were looking at your illustrious career, James, and you got to tell us about working with Lee Andrews in the Hearts in the next couple of years down the line from uh, that Coriel incident, right? And yeah. your interaction with his son, Amir, you got to tell us about that, man. So, of course, this was the late 70s, and I was still of the mindset that we were going to make it. The bass player at that time was a guy by the name of Butch Stockton in my band. And somehow he got connected with Lee Andrews. And I had no idea who Lee, Lee Andrews was. You know, I was informed that he was sort of like a doo-wop, early 60s kind of a, an artist. But what happened was, is that most of the members of my band ended up going to play for Lee Andrews. I was wrong to take a chance with somebody new. I sit in my room. Looking out at the rain, my tears are like crystals, they cover my window pane. Oh, I long to do the things we used to do. I'm lonely and I'm blue, yet I'll try to get along without you. And so they were like, You want to come? And I was. It was mixed emotions because I was a little pissed off. This this band that was going to make it is now going to go play, you know, these shows taking away from this original music that was making no money. You know, they were going to go on the road and get paid. Anyway, I went to the audition. I passed. And so we all went on the road. And the entire time, it, to me, it was just a way of keeping the same band members together. Uh, always with the intention of like, well, we're on the road. This is how I'm making my money. But when we go home, you know, we're going to work on our serious music. Of course, the band Lee Andrews and the Hearts had changed vastly. I believe it was an all-male vocal group originally. But at this point, it was Lee Andrews and his wife. And then there was another uh, vocalist named Cookie uh, in the band. Well, you know, we played, we would, we would go to like Pittsburgh and play three weeks at a hotel and play their room. And all sorts of people would come up and, you know, we would stay at hotels where Willie Nelson was or where I forget where we were, but, you know, the outlaws came in, I guess, from their concert. They were staying at this hotel. We were playing in the ballroom. They called me over to the bar and they were like, well, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just doing this to make money. I'm going to go back. I have a real band. It's a jazz rock band. And they were like, you know, I would forget that idea. I would go home and do rock and roll. And then once you make it in rock and roll, then you can do whatever you want. Anyway, Lee and his wife had a very young son. I have a picture of this. And what's funny about it is the young son is uh, is Amir. Everybody probably knows him as Questlove. One of my favorite Philadelphians. I remember one morning in the soul shack, cooling in the outback on a songwriting ship. Blizzard fired off a Bob Marley split on a cloud. I'll be relaxing on the last night and shit. It's studio today, but hey, brother, question was on the west side of sleep without a clue when... I hollered down at Crumbs to pick up the phone and tell him to get ready. Question, question, Yeah, bought a chicken wing, so I met him in the West. Where we had the lights and wait for up a band and best. Bessie broke down on the other side of town. Yo, you know what it's about. The news is out. To the city like real music. Sweet music, soul music. You know the roots is a group. You gotta choose it just to use it to make you move it. Yeah, does anybody like But back then there was no quest love. He was just a mere... And I don't know how old he was. Maybe he was 10. But his hair is fucking the same. Same afro. I mean, actually, his hair is probably a little shorter now. 
But so I used to pick them up, put them on my lap and let them bang on my drums. And that was Amir. And then um, I left uh, the band in 79. And I probably didn't see Amir again until he was, I guess, starting the roots. Uh, he was an intern at Roughhouse Records. Uh, you remember Roughhouse Records, right? Yeah, Chris Schwartz was on, and he told us about that time with him as well. Well, you know, we all started at uh, the 444 building at 3rd and Calla Hill. We were all in the basement. So there was Studio 4, and there was Roughhouse Records, and there was me. And um, Amir was uh, in The Roots, but they weren't uh, big yet, The Roots. They were just a local band. I can remember working on records and asking him to come in, listen, and say, listen, you know, I'm a big Tony, Tony, Tony fan. I'm going to put harmonica and a lead guitar on this. You know, you, uh, the brothers are going to be ready for this, you know, and he, we would talk and, you know, and then, of course, they became huge. And, uh, you know, we stay in touch every now and then. Of course, when his father passed, uh, I reached out to him and I have all these pictures of me uh, with Lee Andrews on the road. If you remember years ago when the Stones released Exile, uh, I guess it was Jimmy Fallon had a different celebrity on every night. They did a Stones tune and the, 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 the Roots, Fallon's band would back them up. <clears throat> and I I was there watching one night and I thought, uh, I'm watching Amir and he's playing and he's doing the Charlie Watts hitch, okay, which was actually a bad habit for drummers and it became a signature for him. So he's playing the hi-hat, but whenever he would hit the snare, he would lift his hand from the hi-hat. So he played like this. I watched, and of course, Amir played drums correctly, but what he was doing the Stones to him, he was mimicking that Charlie Watts habit. And I sent him an email immediately and said, I don't know how many people in America are catching this, but I appreciate what you're doing, you know. You also have worked as a producer, studio musician to some pretty big names. You worked on the Fahrenheit album with Bon Jovi. You've worked with Gladys Knight. You've worked with the Gamblin' Huff crew, Patti LaBelle, Billy Preston. I mean, Sheena Easton, Taj Mahal. So what was it like to work with some of these big name musicians and we'll start with Taj Mahal. Uh, so Taj was recording at studio four and the producer was Skip Drinkwater. And if you if you go back, uh, Skip was a producer. I believe he produced the good God album with Hank Ransom, uh, which was on, I think Atlantic back in the seventies. So Skip was a local guy who made good. I got into the business, uh, in the studio business, by bringing all the electronic gadgetry stuff in. After the uh, Lee Andrews stuff, I took the Outlaws' advice, by the way, and formed a rock band that was meant to be a joke. I formed a band that called it Keith Jones. Keith Jones was a pseudonym that I used in college when I used to review music. Can you guess where Keith Jones came from? Half of Richards and Brian. That's it. Okay. Right. So, <laughs> so I, I did what the what the outlaw said. Go do rock and roll. So while I was on the road, I wrote some rock and roll music, and I went into the studio and started by myself, and then I started to invite friends in, and then I thought I'm going to do one show one night, 
And uh, there was a friend of mine named Steve Benson, who was a good friend. And Steve used to book a club called Alexander's in Browns Mills, New Jersey. That, that rings a bell. Sure. He said, I'm going to book you there. And I said, great. So it was going to be a one night venture. But in the meantime, Alan Newman, who worked, I don't know if you know Alan, I'm throwing names out you there. You kidding? Surely I know Alan. So Alan worked down at, at uh, Stars, at Second and Bainbridge for Stephen Starr. So he said, hey, before you get this booking, we, we want you to play at Stars. Well, we only knew about nine songs. And we said, sure. So there were four local bands. And we went down and we played. And the review came out in the Inquirer. I, I might have been Edgar Kishak that reviewed it. I don't remember. But um, uh, Ed Shockey was there. Another brethren in the radio world. True. Uh, and it went over very well, and we got a great review in the paper. They immediately booked us two weeks later to open for a new act that went nowhere on Capitol Records called William Oz. We did that gig. From that gig, we got booked at Alexander's opening for Chuck Berry and then backing him up. I have to ask you a very serious question at this time, Marcus. You know I've discussed seeing Chuck Berry at Alexander's in this time frame, and I've often wondered who was that backup band. Is this the same night where Chuck fell off the back of the oh, no. stage? I don't recall that. Uh, okay, you were the drummer, and you would have recalled it if it was that same night. Because that's what happened when I saw Chuck. You know, he had the opening band playing for him. He was yelling at the drummer and fell off the back of the fucking that, stage. That was, I don't think that was us. You would have remembered. I would have remembered. I was just like, for a second there, I was like, mm-hmm. this Marcus knew I was, knows where I was going with this. It was like, we've talked about this, and it, it would have been too much coincidence that we just had a friend on, and you happened to be the drummer he was talking to. It would have been Around 1980, I want to say, I, I can't recall what year it was. I will say this about Chuck because, you know, I obviously I, I knew nothing about him other than his music. I did I never met the guy. They just told us to listen to this double album, Greatest Hits, and study the songs, you know. And of course, I knew most of my Chuck Berry songs via the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, and the rock bands that I grew up with, right? So, you know, we opened up. He wasn't there at the club. Apparently, he he arrived at the last minute. He would have, uh, on his rider, he would ask for two Fender amplifiers to be rented and a backup band. This was after he got out of jail. You know, he didn't want to play around. He just wanted his money. He didn't want to carry a band or anything. So he, he and his daughter drove up. He walked in with his guitar. His daughter immediately went over and hustled people at the pool table. And he came backstage, and we're all in awe. But we had no opportunity to speak with him beforehand so we're we're asking obvious questions like hey what are you going to open with <laughs> you know what, what song are you going to do and and i forget what the song was but the guitar player said well what key are you going to do it in you know so we all know <laughs> he said wherever my hand hits the guitar and then he just said who's the drummer i said me he said just watch my feet and i went well he goes, just watch my feet all right so I learned what that meant uh, because whenever he would do a stop, he would sort of click his feet together and you had to watch him, you know? So I was extremely nervous uh, when we started playing with him. 
And, you know, if we did songs like Little Queenie or whatever, so in my mind, it was like, get your yayas out and stoked, right? You know? But it was Chuck Berry. And people were coming up on stage. I thought, this is as close as I've ever gotten to, like, the real rock and roll. And so he comes to the first stop, and I stopped. And he looked around at me, and he just sort of smiled. And then we kept playing. And then uh, when we did it again, he did another stop. And he turned around, and then he just, I just remember him saying, he pointed to me, and he said, the drummer's got ears, and I was in heaven. But when the show was over, there was no socializing. You know, there was no sense of brotherhood. To him, it was like he got his money and I'm out of here. And, and I had nothing for him to sign. I'm like, oh, my God. So I pulled a $5 bill out of my pocket and I said, sign that. Now, I was still living at home at this time with my parents. Right. And my original band had a girl singer in it who was well endowed. And her birthday was coming up. And I thought as a gag gift, I would buy her a training bra. But I, I didn't have the balls to go get it myself. So I asked my mother to do it. Okay, so the show with Chuck is over. I go home, go to sleep. Next morning, I wake up, or probably afternoon. My jeans are on my chair. I'm, I'm eager to look at my $5 bill, and it's gone. Turns out my mother, while I was asleep, doing her good deed as a mother to go get that training bra I asked for, took the money out of my pocket. And in that pocket was my signature of Chuck Berry on $5 bill. My father and mother felt so bad, they went back and, and tried to find that money, which they never did. So that was my Chuck Berry story. All right, now, Marcus, you asked me a question that goes back to Taj. Because Taj yeah. was a few years down the road. Yeah. At age 28, I realized I wasn't going to be a rock star. And I had met a girl who's now my wife. And I, at that time, people were saying, I'm making my age in salary. So if somebody was 26 and they're making $26,000 a year, you know, I was in awe of that because as a musician, especially playing original music, I was making like a hundred bucks a weekend. Now I, I started to do jingles in the recording studio, but I couldn't break into the studios. They all had their own musicians. As a drummer, I no way I could get in. Do you guys know what a Lindrum was? No. Break out your number two lead pencils. There'll be a quiz. All righty. No, I don't know. No. So I was a huge fan of, of people like Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush. These prog, these English prog rockers used uh, all these fancy schmancy things like a Fairlight CMI and a Lindrum. I had no idea what a Lindrum was. It's a drum machine, Jim. Come on. And you couldn't buy it in Philly. You could only get it either at Martin's Audio in New York or Leo's Music in San Francisco. And they were about $2,600 at the time. Uh, so I only had about half that. I borrowed the money from my father. And then my girlfriend, again, the girl I'm married to now, we sat down and I put a, a one sheet together with what the thing was. I had to educate everybody to what the Lindrum was. This was, I was trying to break into the studio business. So I, I put a Rolodex together, which for everyone not old enough is today's contacts in your iPhone. A Rolodex was a piece of, a little piece of paper that went on sort of a, a wheel 
like device that you would spin alphabetically and come up with the, the name of the person you were looking for. Every business had it. It was a Rolodex. And I knocked on every door of every studio, of every production house, educated everybody as to what the Lindrum was. And a few months went by and nothing was happening. And I thought, well, you know, if nothing else, it will help me with arranging my original music. And then all of a sudden, the R&B guys, uh, Kay Williams, again, no longer with us, was in a band called Breakwater, uh, which were very popular at the time. And they were signed to uh, maybe... uh, Arista. In fact, for Halloween, they, they used one of the Breakwater songs for the Reese's uh, peanut butter cup commercial. Huh. They got paid for that. Good. So Kay would bring me to his house. And pay me $25 a song to program drums. 25 bucks isn't a lot of money, but that, that he was the only person paying. And then all of a sudden, T-Life, who's still with us and is in Philly, called me up. And if you don't know who T-Life is, T was one of the writers of Shame by Evelyn Champagne King, which was a big disco yeah. hit. So I met T-Life. And then T brought me into Sigma Sound Studios, which was Man Olympus. You know, you couldn't get in there. And I would walk in there with my drum machine uh, working for him. And all of the engineers looked on me like I was pond scum. You know, who is this guy and what is this? But over a period of time, uh, enough people start to bring you in. Your name starts to circulate. You start working in other studios. And then all of a sudden, they accept you. And you become friends with all the engineers. I was brought in doing the electronic stuff, the drum machine stuff. And then I had a partner, Randy Canner, who was the keyboard guy. Joe Tarsia, who owned Sigma, gave us a room. Things snowballed in the late 80s. Uh, I had a baby, so I couldn't rehearse in the loft anymore. So I took a room down at 3rd and Cal Hill, 444 building, with all the guys from Rough House, right. and who, who were nobody at that time and studio four and they just said hey you know um that stuff that you do where you sample the background vocals and fly them in we we need that for taj mahal And that's how I met Taj. Skip Drinkwater brought me in to do, uh, I didn't play, I programmed, I sampled. You know, I took vocals and did stuff like that. Which record was that, Jimmy? Squat That Rabbit was on it because Joe Niccolo did the remix. Hall and Oates were on it. I still hear it on WXPN. His brother and the other guy, uh, Dave Johnson, that owned Studio 4, I never thought highly of Joe as an engineer, you know? So they gave Joe what they thought was this music that they didn't want to deal with because, you know, Phil and Dave wanted to be rock and rollers. They gave Joe this new music called rap because they didn't want to be bothered with it. Joe ended up doing that and, you know, <laughs> he, became, he became God, you know, uh, and started Rough House. Anyway, I did the electric stuff. Uh, even the when I did Bon Jovi, there was a studio down on what was called Delaware Avenue. Now it's Columbus Boulevard. 
called uh, The Warehouse. Sure. I don't know if anybody remembers that. The warehouse. I worked at Shadow Traffic. They were on the fourth or fifth floor, and the warehouse was on the ground floor. And that was owned by two guys. O.B. O'Brien, who became and still is one of John Bon Jovi's best buds and works for him. And Lance Quinn, who was a producer at the time. He was one of the guys that when all of those Hendrix albums were being released posthumously, they would bring Lance in to fix some of Hendrix's guitar work. But Lance, I think it was Lance's gig. Myself and my partner Randy were called in to do the electronic end of it. And you're going to say, well, what, what was electronic on that record? David, the keyboard player in Bon Jovi, had synthesizers. But back then, MIDI, if you know what MIDI is, sure, was just born. So our job was to sync up stuff that was on tape and synthesizers and drum machines to the tape so that they ran together. It was still primitive. So, for example, when Tico, the drummer, would do a drum fill, uh, we didn't have triggering at the time. So I physically had to set up my, they wanted me to play Simmons drums. Do you remember them? Yes. Right. The hexagon drums that everybody used in their videos during the 80s. They were electronic. You know, I was one of the first with Simmons drums. I would have to listen to the recording and mimic uh, Tico's drum fills on the Simmons because Obi wanted the toms to have a deeper sound. Same with the snare drum. And then uh, the other thing I would do is... um, I took the Lindrum, which was not a sampler. It played digital samples, but they were on what we call EPROMs. You couldn't sample. You could only buy a sound on an EPROM mm-hmm. and pop it in. And I forgot, it's either the last song on the album, I forget the title, but there's a double bass drum that Tico played. And he had to play it for like five minutes straight. And they were like, he's never going to do that because it's humanly impossible to do it. So I became the bass drum. So I would take the bass drum and put it in the conga slots so I could get two different pitches and just program whatever it was. And Tico played on top of that. That was my work with Bon Jovi, but it was all electronic. But you were the guy. In Philly. And Jimmy Braylauer was in New York. But he was working with Stevie Winwood, and I was working with all the R&B acts. But we still stay in touch. We still have a mutual respect for each other. and But it was an exciting time uh, back then for the electronic stuff. Eventually, once you become uh, known, people don't bring you in uh, because of anything in particular anymore. They just know that, well, you did the, all these records. We're bringing you in and uh, you do what you think is best, like with Billy Preston. It wasn't so much do Lindrum. It was like, what do you, what do you, what do you want to do? So it grew. But Taj Mahal... Uh, for the guys at Studio Four who were rock and rollers and really didn't do much in the way of R&B, they brought me in for more of that that technical aspect. Speaking of the studios, Cambridge Sound has been uh, part of your blood for a long time. It started in Bucks County, then you moved into Philly, and you've got one in Ivyland now and still one in Philly. Man, you're everywhere. So look up Cambridge Sound Studios uh, online if you're looking for a great place to, to make tracks. The reason it was in Bucks, I mean, I've always been situated in Philly, but I've lived in Bucks County since 1993. And um, strange story, a guy came to paint my deck in the early mid-2000s. Turned out to be Peter Baltus, the bass player from the German metal band, Accept. What? Who I, I was never a fan. He lived in Newtown, and he had a paint company, a painting company, Bucks County Painting. 
he came over and he walked into my house and you know while we're talking numbers he looked at all my gold records on the wall the platinum records and he said you're in the business and i said yeah he said me too and i said okay and then he explained to me he said i was an accept and i felt bad because i didn't know who they were he said yeah our big hit was balls to the wall you know and i said well, i i said this is really funny because when when my toll brother's house was being built uh one of the guys for toll brothers that came in was another british bass player he was the bass player from the buzzcocks <laughs> so i met all these bass players uh on, well working on my house and bucks and peter and i became very good friends and he owned not owned he was partners in sort of like a one of those rock what are they called uh, the schools of rock that wasn't their name but he and another guy started it at this point he and i have been working together and i hired him to play bass on stuff there was a furniture store that was uh they were leaving and he said to me you should go check that out and i thought well you know maybe this would be cool i live in bucks county uh, it's only you know five minutes from my house this could be awesome so i took the plunge and the, the studio you know you're always i i've had a few studios in my time and coming up with a name is always a pain in the ass the studio sat uh, on uh number one cambridge lane and i thought well what a British name that is Cambridge Studios. There you go. So that's what we became, and I stayed there uh, for six years until I realized that everybody that was coming to the studio, whether they lived in Bucks County or not, you know, uh, if they graduated college, they were living in South Philly or New York or Boston, and they were all driving in. So there was no advantage to Bucks County, except that it was close to my house. And everybody said, "You got to move back into Philly." where there are more poor musicians per square block. <laughs> That's true. And so there you are. So I moved into Alpha, what used to be Alpha Studios, and we've been there since 2000, January of 2014. I have three engineers that work for me downtown. I try not to go down there very often, so it saves me a lot of driving. <laughs> well, we're going to drive down to Hatboro, and we're going to grab a growler now because it's great to catch up with you and talk about all this stuff, but... We really want to talk about this reissue of an amazing album that I had never heard before. And we'll come back after the break and talk with Jim Salamone more. And we'll talk about the Lost Teddy Pendergrass Christmas album next on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. The fall is here and Crooked Eye is rocking in the heart of Hatboro. If you follow them on Facebook, you can find out what is happening at Crooked Eye. And, of course, their amazing selection of beers. The brews are always delicious and experimental in many cases. Check out the board on their Facebook account. They always put a fresh picture of the board up there. And something happened recently. We've been talking about Salty Vets Barbecue, which is available on certain nights at uh, the brewery. Matt posted about uh, an incredible experience they had where they were really, like, pushing hard and... Uh, orders were overwhelming and ended up in recent weeks, like two weeks before we record this, had their best day ever at Salty Vets Barbecue. Selling great barbecue to people and working hard doing it. It's good stuff. And it's all part of the energy there, Crooked Eye, where you go, you make new friends, you have a good time. And whatever you want, whether it's the tasty brews that come from the back room there at the brewery, uh, craft cocktails, they've got wine and cider, and of course, that Salty Vets Barbecue. Always a good time to be had when you head down to Hatboro and make a crooked eye. 
Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, you're a professor at Glassboro State Rowan University Rowan, now, in, right? In Glassboro. Right, in Glassboro. Yeah. And you have That's kids. That's pretty awesome. You, you try to p- pass some knowledge along to the younger generation. I like to call it, I like, I like to, ex- I say exchange. Because as much as I uh, teach them Pro Tools and recording, uh, you know, I am not one of these people that, that thinks that Ah, the music of today sucks. I think the musicians today are, I don't know what they're eating, but the musicians of today are unbelievably phenomenal. I like a ton of new bands. Being with these kids, we exchange perspective and they they hit me to so much. And I, I consider myself somebody that likes to listen to new music. I seek out new music, but these kids, they bring up people yeah, I was at the man last night. It was sold out. No mention an artist. And I'm like, who is this? I never heard of them. And they're selling out the man. It's great. I, you know, and I've hired some of my students. I use as my drum tech and some of uh, our engineers or assistants at my studio. That's why I do it. You know, one day a week. They, they keep me young. <laughs> you mentioned that you as a musician continue to listen to a lot of new music, which is great because working in the studio, working around musicians, it's great that you continue to hear what the young new musicians are putting out today. Are there any bands or songwriters or musicians that really stand out to you? So unlike my career in the eighties and nineties, where I was uh, in the studios doing primarily R and B music, because in Philadelphia, that's what you had to do. We weren't really a rock and roll town. But today, since uh, since opening up Cambridge, uh, you know, I've been able to lean back more into my rock roots. There are a number of amazing um, indie bands, alternative bands, Americana, which is my forte. People like um, Chris Casper, Hezekiah Jones. Why you even want to go? 
father and son team amazing artists great songwriters great singers artists that that should be bigger than they are christine Avrila, who's been a local staple in philadelphia music i i I did a couple of songs with her a year ago unlike the past where it was mostly all label major label work on major labels uh almost all those labels are gone i'm working with a lot of um you know, unsigned, independent, or if they're signed, they're signed to labels that are not affiliated with a major. Crisscross, the, the rap act, uh, Sony gave them $80,000 to do the rap, which was cheap. Uh, the budgets would be a quarter of a million dollars to do an album. When I did the Root Boys at Atlantic, mm-hmm. you know, it was a quarter of a million bucks, uh, the recording budget. Doesn't mean I got that. You know, that quarter of a million went to a lot of people, but mostly towards the making of, of the record. Speaking of people from Philadelphia, part of the reason we wanted to get together this week and talk with you is about a guy who is closely identified with our city musically. And I wanted to talk to you about your involvement in the re-release of the Teddy Pendergrass Christmas album. Tell us about the album, the title, and all that, and how people can find okay. it. Well, the album was originally recorded in 1998, uh, maybe two months ago. I received a phone call from a friend of mine who used to work at Roughhouse, who now works with a company called Primary Wave. He informed me that they negotiated a deal with Joan Pendergrass. Uh, they negotiated a deal with her to purchase this from the estate, which was awesome you know, because most of Teddy's stuff was on Philly International, Gamble and Huff's label. You know, you can go on Spotify or digital streaming and there's a ton of all of Teddy's greatest hits. But this album wasn't on uh, Philly International. So it, it fell between the cracks and this company discovered it and decided uh, to re-release it, which was exciting. The album is This Christmas, I'd Rather Have Love. And you were there in the creation phase of this album. It was the last album he recorded, correct? Yes, it was. What brought you to this project initially and what brought you back around to do it and, you know, fix it up a little, I guess? Didn't do anything. Did you have to do much of that? Didn't even remaster it. No? We discussed remastering it, uh, but I was going away uh, at the end of the summer in August for two weeks and they said well we have a deadline it's got to be in by such and such a date and i said i won't be here they just released it see this is a copy of the album which you won't be able to find this is from the original uh back in 1998 they're not releasing a hard copy of the album it's strictly digital uh so i'm assuming that they just took this as it was as it is digital because it's cd and then just uh loaded this up. The album is today as it was in 1998. Snowflakes, some slippers, a toaster, and a tie.
there's one I dream of this Christmas. How did you come to connect with Teddy and make this album? And how did you end up co-writing one of the songs, Christmas right. and You? Well, uh, 1989, I, I was called into KGEM Studios, which was in Gladwin. Uh, Teddy was recording. He was on the Electra label. Some producers that I knew were working working on some songs and they asked me to come in. I worked on three songs on the album called Truly Blessed, which was a few albums before the Christmas album, but that's where, that's how I was brought in and that's how I met Teddy. And at the time, early 90s, I had a number one R&B hit with a band called The Rude Boys on Atlantic Records. So things were going well for me. They were like, they brought me in, hoping I could help. So I worked on three songs and it went very well. That's how I met Teddy. His next album was Voodoo, which I had almost nothing to do with. Then in 1993, I get a call from Teddy Pendergrass out of the clear blue. And he said to me, hey, what would you think about co-producing and co-writing with me? And I thought, hey, geez, I'd be an honor. Uh, we went out to his house, which was also in Gladwin, and we discussed. He was still signed with Electra. So our, our first little uh, training ground was doing a remake of One in a Million, the Larry Graham song. Baby, turn the lights down, nice and low. It's something I want to tell you. See, everything in my life is all right. Since I found you, girl. So we worked on this album. Eventually, he was dropped by Electra. Sylvia Rohn, who was the head at Electra, let Teddy walk with all those songs. Teddy met this other guy that started a new label called Wind Up Records, which became Creed's label. Right. So we finished it and we put this other album together called You and I. Which also fell between the cracks which was also recently released, but not being marketed by Primary Wave, the people that are doing the Christmas album. We did the R&B album and, and the head of the label said, we need a Christmas song. So we did Oh Holy Night. It might be my favorite song on the album. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is Long lay the world 
They liked it so much that they said, hey, we're not going to release it. We want you to do a whole album and we'll release it next year. That was a sweet and sour message because I was so excited about uh, producing Oh Holy Night, thinking it was coming out that year. And they pretty much say, nope, you got to wait a whole other year. So I'm driving around in my convertible in the summertime, you know, with Christmas songs blasting out of my car. People thought I was crazy. Uh, <laughs> But you know, it's a little side note. It was, it was funny because when, when Teddy called me, he said, listen, I've got to do a Christmas album for this new label. He said, but I've only got one problem. I said, what's that? He said, I've only got $100,000 to do the album. You know, so now back then, I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? That's not a lot of money. You know, if somebody came to me now and said, we have $100,000 to do an album, I'd say, shit, we can do five albums. So I had to sit down and I had to put a budget proposal of how to structure the songs. And of course, we base everything uh, on 10 songs, pretty much, right? So you figure you got a budget of $10,000 a song. First of all, I only produced seven of the 11 songs. So I, I, I would structure some songs, for example, like Joy to the World or Little Drummer Boy, where I wanted a choir, a gospel choir. We did We Three Kings, and I did it as a jazz quartet so that I didn't need as many people. Therefore, it didn't cost as much. So I was on vacation that summer, figuring out how I was going to move the budget around while we chose the songs for the album. We Three Kings of By the way, the version of Joy to the World on this album could be the hit smash sleeper hit of the holiday season. It's really great. And I got to tell you, that that's crazy. And Happy Kwanzaa has to be promoted to some degree out there as a possible 
song for that holiday as well. It's really great. So here's what they did. Uh, Primary Wave sent out a press release about a month and a half ago. Uh, well, it was, it was August when they called me to tell me about it. But September 19th, they released Joy to the World as a single on digital platforms like Spotify. And then a few weeks later, they released Happy Kwanzaa. And then a few weeks later, they released Christmas and You. Happy Kwanzaa. Feel the joy as we sing of the love togetherness can surely bring emotion. Set the table at a strong Thankful for the first fruits of the year. Stay a light a candle just for you. Come join the party. It's a celebration. Karamu at Kwanzaa time of year. Red and yellow, black and white. Y'all, it's all right. It's a celebration that shall last throughout the year. I co-wrote that with Teddy, but that's far from my favorite song on the record. Yeah, but it's really good, Jim. I think people are going to like well, it. I, I mean, I hope they like everything. I mean, I really enjoy making that record. And I, somewhere in my garage, I've got uh, VHS tapes uh, of some of the sessions. We brought a little kids choir from a, a middle school to, to blend in with a gospel choir. Uh, and we did that specifically for um, the Lennon song, you know, uh, the Christmas song. Right. Happy Christmas. Yeah, that was what a project that was. So I started the song off in 4-4. Four, four. And as you know, that, that song with, by Lennon is not. It's in three. I started it off like a baby face R&B song with the drum machine, and acoustic guitar in 4-4 four, four with the gospel choir somewhat sedate singing backgrounds like an R&B song. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over And a new one has just begun And so this is Christmas And then, you know, I don't know, 60% of the way through the song, I kick it in with live drums and then the little kids and the gospel. Then it, then it goes into three-quarter time, like Lennon's song.
I mean, I, I can still, I remember what I was wearing the day that all those people were at the recording studio, all these kids with the people from the school, all the gospel choir. And it was just amazing. I had so much fun uh, with the background vocals on these songs. Uh, and again, you know, Teddy being a quadriplegic and, you know, you forget Teddy, he was a strong, strong man. He didn't let anything get in his way. So much so that, you know, when you're in the studio recording him, you forget that from the neck down, he's a quadriplegic, mm -hmm. right? If you're a singer, right. you need your diaphragm, which is in your belly, to sing, right? On his wheelchair, when he would sing, they would attach these two metal hooks to each arm. He would lift against these metal hooks, press himself up so that he literally would pull his body up so that his diaphragm would move when he had to hit a high note. And, you know, and he would tire easily. But while you're working, because he was such a proactive man, you know, it, it never did you, did you ever hear from him. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a quadriplegic. You got to give me a break. Never. This freaking guy was an animal. He was intense. Um, so you would forget. And you're recording him and you would say things. And occasionally he would say, uh, I, I, Jim, but you know, I need to take a break. I'm and then he would, we would stop recording mm. and he would pull back off the microphone and then he would ease his wheelchair back so that he was uh, reclined. He was almost flat so he could rest. And then when he was ready, he would go back down and, and go to work. Amazing, amazing guy. He didn't have the power that he had uh, obviously before the accident, but he was still shockingly good given his circumstances. I want to ask you about a couple of the um, instrumental lines in here. There's some great guitar playing uh, on the album, all throughout the album. Uh, who was in the studio laying down that stuff, drums and, and bass and what have you? Because you've got so much else going on on all these songs who's at the heart of it it's funny you mentioned the guitar player because till this day we're I'm still very good friends i still use him when people can afford him but the guitar player on that album except for one song uh the jazz uh, we three kings was um Chakabadi, who passed away I forget his first name but every other guitar was Randy Bowler, who was a Philadelphia native, who I worked with since the 80s. A phenomenal class act, amazing guitar player, amazing human. He is the epitome of class. He can play anything on the guitar. I thank God that he still lives in Philly because he's that good. Uh, so he's playing guitar on everything that I produced, except we Three Kings. I either played live drums or did drum programming on the songs that I produced. On bass, uh, one of the engineers who worked for me, uh, his name is Phil Polsonelli, uh, who's from Jersey. He played bass, uh, except for Oh Holy Night, where I brought a fretless bass player in, who again, like Randy Bowen, he's a god, Chico Huff. Yeah, oh, yeah. I just texted, I just hired him for November the 14th to do three songs for two different artists. I said, it's going to be a wrecking crew day. 
you're going to come in at 11 and we're going to do three songs till six o'clock that night. He's a phenomenal bass player and he plays fretless bass. There's a song or two that has a synth bass. Uh, Stephen Ford, who was uh, in the gospel church world, played synth bass. Uh, Joshua Yudkin uh, was part of the songwriting team and was also the primary keyboard player. See, we both agree that the time has come for us to say goodbye. And sometimes I think about it so. Oh, it hurts me till I cry. I know it won't be easy to forget the things that we used to do. And I also used James Poyser uh, on one song. James is uh, in the roots. You, you can watch him on Jimmy Fallon uh, every night with Amir. Uh, but I, I brought James in uh, on one of the songs. Well, I'm some amazed you're able to just pull all this out of the air, uh, you know, since I'm pressing you for oh, it. No, I, this stuff is in my... I relish those days, believe me. Was... Teddy involved in any of the unique arrangements in any of these songs? Because I noticed, like, one of the things that stood out to me listening to the album was the little drummer boy. I love the Caribbean percussion and drums and how it flowed into the soul guitar. For little drummer boy, the funny thing about that, I mean, you know, we stuck pretty close to the actual arrangement of the song, but we just changed the, in, the innards, so to speak. So that song starts out with... Uh, if you are listening carefully, you'll notice that it slightly resembles Steve Gadd drum work in 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, which is what I wanted to use. I actually wanted to take the Steve Gadd drum sample off the record and use it. Uh, but you got to pay for that. You know, it's not, they don't give it to you. So I went into the studio and just, uh, I did my rendition of that drum beat. And then I, I, I tried to lo-fi it up a little bit so that it sounded like a sample. We're having a Christmas party here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll with Jim Salamone, and we're talking about uh, the album This Christmas I'd Rather Have Love, re-released from the great Teddy Pendergrass. And this is all the down into the nitty-gritty of how this thing came together. You can find it. I just found the full album the other day uh, on Spotify when I was... Uh, going to listen to those three songs you were talking about that were released. And I go in and what ho, the whole album's there. So it's really great. I mean, Teddy, uh, he was like the executive producer. But uh, for any number of reasons, including the most obvious, he was not uh, he was not there on a day-to-day -day basis doing all this stuff. I contracted all the musicians and I would I would run every idea by him and get his approval before we did it. But even on Little Drummer Boy, uh, I had a blast doing the background vocals on that. And that was sort of a, there were some of my ideas uh, and the people in the in the gospel choir, you know, they would come up with ideas as, as, as well. And Teddy wouldn't be there for that. Uh, Teddy pretty much came in for the most part when it was time for him to sing. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost 
trying to set the holiday spirit this album's going on my list of uh albums i need under the tree because i'm a christmas album nut jim you didn't know that before you got yourself into this i'm listening and making notes the whole time uh for this holiday season if you've got somebody who loves teddy if you got somebody who loves christmas music i'm highly recommending this one and if, if joy to the world was the only song that really was amazing I'd still feel that way, and I know you love that one too, Marcus. I definitely do. I love Little Drummer Boy. Happy Kwanzaa is wonderful. His version of Happy Christmas, War is Over is fantastic. Christmas and You is a beautiful song. I really enjoyed listening to this album as we get into the holiday spirit. I gotta say, though, I came across one thing in my research that still has me going, what? Yes. Okay, it's a quote from an article in The Guardian, and it, the quote is from Shep Gordon, who I never knew was in management for Teddy. I'm sure. I never yeah, knew that. Never. I never knew that. I mean, yeah, I know all the people Shep's managed through his career, but I never knew he worked with Teddy. You still learn every time you do this goddamn podcast, Jim, I swear. We learn stuff every time. It's never over. You're always learning. Mm-hmm. And as I look at that smiling picture of the teddy bear man i want to thank you for coming on and telling some stories and giving us some in-depth thoughts and views into this album and him uh overall but really folks like we said you know check it out wherever you get music uh it's it's fresh stuff that you haven't heard before i i only think i heard maybe one song on this whole album before we started talking about it jim What's cool is is that it is a Christmas album, which means every year it, it sort of has another life. Uh, I was excited about it when we did it. And when I found out that it was being re-released, it was extremely exciting because, you know, it's sort of like it's sort of like telling people, mm-hmm. well, what do you mean you don't believe me? It's, it's the truth. You know, it is. Well, where is it? You know, and so finally, after all these years, I can go to Spotify at the very least, you know. I mean, I've always had my copy, but now it's out there for, uh, you know, for the world to enjoy. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, he's not around to appreciate it. And when I listen to the music, it, it definitely uh, tugs at the old heartstrings when I think about, you know, the conversations and, the, you know, the challenges that we went through in making it. But, um, you know, to, to, to uh, to quote one of his albums, Truly Blessed, that's how I feel. Uh, you know, it, it was, I, I feel amazingly lucky to have been a part of it and to know the man uh, the way I, that I did and be friends with him, to be able to sit at a dinner table with him and 
to have dinner that his mother cooked, That's you know, man. and I do think that he's a, he's a Philadelphia treasure. Uh, and uh, I'm glad that, uh, you know, his, his name and his music is still out there. Thanks for coming and sharing with us on the podcast, Jimmy. Yeah. Thank you for the great story. Thank you, we guys. appreciate it. And thanks for sharing some knowledge too. Give us your feedback on the email. It's easy. Imbalancehistory at gmail.com anytime. And you can always check in on social media as well. Catch all the episodes wherever you get your podcast or on imbalancehistory.com. Thanks to Jim Salamone from Cambridge Studios for coming on and being our guest this week. Good to have you with us, man. All right. Thank you. It was great. This has been a production of Dark Doc Media, the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.